The climate crisis, as we all know, is all-encompassing and involves every part of society. That is Alex Halliday. He is the director of Columbia University's Earth Institute. He was the host or moderator for a webinar staged by the university, Climate Change and the Future of Our Cities. It had been my intention to record the event, take a small section and use it as a pointer to a recording which I'm sure would be on the university's website and encourage people to go and listen to it. However, the webinar was so fascinating, so important and so interesting that I decided to make an entire episode from it. First, we'll have some formalities, then we'll listen to the webinar. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean, and I'm coming to you from Shepparton in Victoria, Australia, from the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I've been involved with the practical side of the climate conversation since the early 2000s. That's attending lectures and reading whatever I could find. And although the public interest has broadened as the years have passed, it became apparent to me a few years ago that much more needed to be said. And it was important, terribly important, that we were making much more noise. Unsure of what to do to reach more people, I decided to try my hand, or should I say more correctly, my voice, at podcasting. And what you're listening to now is the result of those efforts. There appeared to be a great silence about the climate crisis. And this podcast is an effort by me to increase the volume of my voice and so help end that silence. Fortunately, it was not as silent as I had thought, as many other podcasts were beavering away and were attempting to alert the world to the climate crisis. And several months ago, I was found, so to speak, by Mark Spencer from the Climactic Collective. Music for this podcast comes courtesy of Music for a Warming World, a Melbourne-based group, and you'll find a link to that group in the episode notes. I trust you'll enjoy this episode, and if you do, please feel free to share it with your friends. Holiday, and welcome to our Earth Day presentation of the Columbia Climate Schools Earth Series. The climate crisis, as we all know, is all-encompassing and involves every part of society. One can think of many major systems that need to change in a manner that builds resilience to the effects of climate change while also reducing emissions. These need to transition in a fashion that is equitable and elevates the well-being of people. The major systems that need to change are things like energy, land use, food, transportation. One other major system that needs to change is our cities. We need to understand how we transition from where the urban environment is today to what we need for the future. Climate change is altering the world, bringing excessive heat, more extreme weather events, sustained droughts, devastating wildfires, and rising sea levels. These dynamics are forcing change and endangering populations. 
And these realities have given way to new technologies, innovative ways of protecting humanity and allowing us to create a sustainable future. And this is really urgently needed. In its latest report, the UN's climate science team, the IPCC, underscored the urgency of a paradigm shift in the way we think about climate change, a time to tap into ingenuity and novel solutions like never before. Tonight, I'm joined by two of Columbia University's superstars, visionary experts who have been working on reinventing approaches to where and how we live in our cities and our communities. Amal Andreas is a design researcher, author, and professor who has just stepped down after many years serving as Dean of Columbia's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. At Columbia, she now serves as an advisor to the president on the university's climate initiatives and the climate school. She is recognized as an architecture thought leader and has lectured and taught widely. Amal is the co-founder of the award-winning New York City architecture firm Workac with, with her partner, Dan Wood. Their work includes such notable projects as Public Farm Number no. 1 at MoMA PS1, the Edible Schoolyard at PS216, PS, for those of you who don't know, is public school, um, in Brooklyn, and PS7 in Harlem, uh, the Miami Garage Museum, and the Beirut Museum of Art as well, currently under construction, as well as many other celebrated spaces. Her publications include The Arab City, Architecture and Representation, co-edited with Nora Akawi. We'll get there when we cross that bridge, 49 cities. And Above the Pavement, the Farm, in collaboration with her partner, Dan Wood. Her impact on architectural practice around the world was recognized when she was named Honorary Fellow of the Royal Architectural Institute of, of Canada in 2021. Andrew Smith is a smart cities expert, and Columbia's Robert A. W. and Christian S. Carlton Professor of Civil Engineering. Andrew specializes in structural health monitoring, using sensor information to determine the condition of critical infrastructure. Recently, his interest in sensor network monitoring has expanded to large fleets of vehicles in urban environments, and we'll hear about that a bit tonight. This sensor instrumentation and vibration analysis has included the remote monitoring of several iconic long-span bridges and landmark, landmark buildings um, and museums. His research interests include the development of data fusion and system identification algorithms to derive maximum information from large heterogeneous sensor networks, monitoring dynamical systems. She, uh, he also does nonlinear system dynamical modeling and simulation and natural hazards risk assessment. So you're supposed to be impressed by all of that. It's a pretty amazing couple of people we've got here today. So welcome to you both and thanks for being here. So I'm going to turn to, um, turn to Amal first. Uh, Amal, um, let's just kick off with how you got into the subject. Architecture is foundational to your work, clearly. Uh, and you are known for exploring the built environment in a way that seeks to balance urbanization with sustainability. So can you tell us what led you to your fascinating work? Thank you, Alex. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, with you tonight, and especially on Earth Day. Um, 
And I'm very hopeful that this is about hope. <laughs> As you list all of the uh, overwhelming uh, things we need to address. Um, so we, uh, my partner Dan and I were invited uh, to teach at Princeton a seminar on urbanism in 2003. We had just come back from the Netherlands where things are done quite differently. Um, and we were very interested already in the notion of ecology and urbanism. We were working in Panama and Costa Rica and countries that were trying to bridge the two in quite a progressive uh, way. And so we started this eco-urbanism seminar and got our students to research cities. And slowly we realized, you know, we've had technology for a long time, but where are the ideas? And we kind of started to look back historically at visionary cities, utopian cities, moments where architects kind of dreamt of, you know, different ways of living. And so we researched about 200 of these historical visionary cities and chose 49 of them to look at them through a kind of ecological lens, like literally redrawing them, measuring them, understanding where those cities were planning to get their food from, water systems, different shades of uh, green, parks, forests, etc. And what was interesting in the book, uh, it's a sort of guide to city making, if you like, um, is that on the left hand side, it was kind of an ingredient, like what you get in your cereal box, you know, what does it take to, you know, density, FAR, uh, green built, to green space to build space, etc. But on the right hand side, the cities were drawn, the recording stopped. And form for us is still really important because form is about ideas. It is the polis. It is the politics. It is how do we shape the relationships between us, between people and other species. And when you think about density, and of course, when we think about uh, how to become more sustainable urbanistically, density is a big uh, part of this. Density is very much a result of form. So for me, and, and it's it's about the data and the technology, but it's also about the ideas, about, it's about the forms that we would like our cities to take in kind of articulating new relationships, uh, which, which, and so it's looking back to look forward is what I love to say, this is a great time for us to do. Andrew, uh, let's turn to you a minute. Um, you approach sustainable cities from a structural engineering perspective. How did you get into this? How do you come to pursue your work? So thank you also for, for the invitation. Um, I came at this actually from a background in structural dynamics. Uh, so that was my graduate training with applications in what we call structural health monitoring and control. So I was particularly interested in infrastructure resilience, but due to dynamic loads like earthquakes and, and high winds. So that was, that was my original uh, baptism into this field. So, but beyond sort of understanding the exposure to natural hazards, a huge part of predicting the performance of critical elements of our infrastructure uh, to those kinds of hazards has been actually to understand the properties of our as-built uh, uh, unique systems in civil engineering. So the difference in civil engineering and other fields of engineering is that we often, we can't crash test our, our infrastructure. And so we need to be able to divine or extrapolate its performance when it's subjected to, to serious loads based on information, maybe on its ambient performance. And so that's, that's how I got into this sort of bringing together recording in progress, physics-based modeling together with large sensor network uh, modeling in order to, to understand our infrastructure. 
And, you know, this field we call instructional health monitoring and in much the same way that we're aging, our infrastructure ages and deteriorates. And it's, it's wise to go for periodic checkups to identify deficiencies before they become critical and emergent. So obviously New York is a great place for me to do this kind of work because we have, at least by U.S. standards, older infrastructure, which has been exposed to relatively harsh climates. And those loads that our infrastructure is exposed to have been increasing over time, just with increasing population uh, density. And oftentimes our infrastructure has outlived its original uh, design life. And so then when you superimpose on top of that the effects of climate change with more extreme more frequent extreme events, we've got plenty to do, I would say, in terms of risk management and mitigation. So fundamentally for me, the, the experience of instrumenting our infrastructure to gain insights and knowledge into performance has, has broadened my research into other sectors of infrastructure and made me realize there's so much that we can do to create more resilient, efficient, and livable cities. And obviously the arrival of the Internet of Things has opened up that potential to really understand our urban environment at high resolutions of space and time. And so this whole host of things that can be sensed in cities, I think, affords us the potential for a better understanding of cities and its inhabitants to promote resilience, sustainability, efficiency and livability for all. Yeah. So that's a great start from both of you. Thank you. And of course, the Internet of Things opens up all kinds of ethical issues as well and privacy issues. So this is this is a, these are big issues for us going forward anyway, regardless of climate change. How do we change society? Amal, uh, okay, focusing on climate change, it's altering the world we live in. Uh, and, and of course, you know, so the built environment, the uh, urban landscape, um, how do you actually reconsider this? Thinking of the, you know, as we said at the beginning, the city's system that has to change going forward to be able to be, both uh, to decarbonize, but also to be resilient to future climate change. Uh, what are your overarching ideas for reinventing uh, the, the cities going forward? Um, well, there's kind of two, two parts, I think, to this question. Uh, well, there's many parts, but there are the basic things that we need to do that we sort of sort of know how to do some of it better than others. If I think through across scale, you know, I, I tend to kind of think through scale when I think about the built environment, you know, at the material scale, we need to get a handle on embodied energy. You know, how much does it take to produce concrete or steel or, you know, that scale of the material is crucial because most buildings are still built out of concrete and steel. And if you look at the regions of the world that are, you know, urbanizing now and going to continue to urbanize they are really using these materials so there's a kind of sense of urgency and you know nobody not everyone has access to timber you know in europe in america we're sort of celebrating celebrating timber i just got back from beirut lebanon i can tell you the cedars are gone so we don't have timber to use uh, and so we really need to think about the material scale and there's a lot of research there's in fact research at columbia university on replacing and reinventing uh, you know concrete which is quite exciting at the building scale we understand operating energy today. I, I think we really understand how we can minimize heating and cooling and, and kind of, you know, build an envelope that is high performance, but we need better regulation, uh, uh, you know, across, across cities and across uh, um, the, the, the planet. And these regulations are quite, you know, varied. Um, 
So these are policy uh, questions, more than design questions. I think on the design question, we know how to do it. Um, at the urban scale, you know, I think uh, you know, what makes an equitable city is going to make a more resilient city. So we, need, we need better access to housing. We need better access to public transportation, walkable city. Uh, you, know, you can't speak of density without speaking of affordable and equitable housing for everyone, without speaking of access to you know, healthy food for everyone, healthy you know, water, et cetera because sprawl uh, is in fact you know one of the driver of carbon emissions when you think about uh, the built environment so if we want to redensify we need to make sure that everyone that is living in this dense dense kind of environment is you know has access to you know equitable uh, uh, living uh, sort of conditions and we saw that you know with covid or with sandy in new york with any a recent or not so recent crisis, it's always the most vulnerable population, often communities of color who are most affected. So we really need to learn from that. But you, you use the word reinvent. And so the second part of the question is, is the, you know, as an architect, the kind of opportunities to reimagine that are exciting to me. If I, you know, visualize a, a kind of typical city now, I want to reinvent every surface, you know, rooftops becoming, you know, uh, uh, farms, urban farms, you know, if uh, most cars are going to be automated, surely some of these streets are, you know, going to be able to be used for something else. Can we grow plants? Can we be living, you know, be living in kind of more forest-like environments? I mean, we, we saw with COVID in New York, restaurants taking over the street and suddenly pedestrian life was back. Um, glass is very performing today, but is it really uh, you know, providing new opportunities to negotiate between inside and outside to create different experiences in these vertical surfaces. And, you know, Andrew mentioned infrastructure. You know, when I think of infrastructure is, is there a way to reinvent it to create new kind of public experiences, new kind of collective moments in the city that are, that are surprising, something more than just moving things? Like can, you, can you do something more with it? So I think there's just a lot to reinvent, uh, uh, to, in the end, I think modernism, let's say, and industrialization and zoning and these things that we needed to do when work was dirty and, and manufacturing, you know, it, it, it kind of spit things apart. You know, we tend to still say this happens here, this happens here. I think we have to reimagine the urban, the rural and the natural sort of in a more messy hybrid way, even within the context of our cities. And I think the result will be, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different way to con conceive of urbanity. You know, uh, maybe we should yeah. be designing shelters for species, you know, that are uh, sort of could live in our environment. So that's the part that excites me as well in terms of the reinvention part. That's great. Fantastic. So by species, you mean animals as well as plants and sounds, that sounds great. I like messy. It sounds really good. So, uh, so Andrew, uh, over to you. I mean, one of the great things about the climate school is that we, we realized that there was so much going on at Columbia across different schools already. And your school of um, engineering and applied sciences has been trailblazing in so many exciting ways. Tell us about how um, in the area of climate and sustainability, tell us about your, your more than 20 year career at Columbia. How has climate change really impacted your research and uh, that of your colleagues uh, in the school? So, as I mentioned, my original background is, is, is in structural engineering primarily. And so it, the climate change has touched my research in, in many, many ways. So the, 
as a structural engineer, the dominant force that from nature that we worry about most is gravity. And so in my lifetime, I hope that it's not, that does not change. Uh, but on top of that, as I mentioned, is the superposition of, of climate effects and increasing uh, extreme weather events. And so I've had a few experiences over, over the years where that power of nature uh, has really struck me with a considerable awe. So I've been part of some post-disaster reconnaissance um, teams in, in New Orleans, Lower Ninth Ward after Hurricane Katrina, in central Taiwan in 2004, the, the mudslide ravaged um, communities there, so advising on, on reconstruction and, and land use. Uh, in 2011, uh, with a few hours notice, rushed out to Verrazano Narrows Bridge uh, to, to instrument the bridge because there was interest in, in Hurricane Irene's effects. Uh, it was projected to have uh, high wind speeds across the bridge, which, which would potentially, uh, well, give us a lot of information on, on its performance. And then most recently working together with our now provost, but then Dean uh, Mary Boyce, uh, reviewing the rehabilitation of the L-Train tunnel uh, with our former governor, uh, and obviously that was... Severe. Those of you who are not New Yorkers, can you explain, uh, can you explain what the L-Train is under? Oh, sure. Yeah, so the, the, during Hurricane Sandy, the L-Train, so this is a tunnel underneath the East River, uh, was uh, inundated, as, as was uh, so much of Lower Manhattan's uh, subway uh, system, and that uh, caused extreme damage to the electrical system, control systems, and required extensive... Um, rehabilitation, which was going to lead to uh, probably a year and a half or more uh, shutdown for all commuters across the, the, um, that subway link. And I think affecting over a quarter of a million daily uh, trips across that, uh, across that link. And so we were uh, called in as an advisory team to, to help uh, rethink the rehabilitation of that. And, and we managed to, to, proposed some suggestions which sort of obviated the need for a shutdown. They were able to do things in a more creative way. But built into that solution is actually a, a permanent uh, monitoring uh, system. So for the future that, that, that we can keep an eye on it. So as I said, all of those experiences have really taught me the, the importance of engineering and, and anticipating our increasing hazards. But also, and I think this is really, really important, is connecting the knowledge. Many things we, we understand and can already estimate and project as engineers working with, together with climate scientists, but transferring that to policy action is, is really an extra, an, an extra challenge. And that's sort of the resiliency side of the story. I, I fundamentally, though, also see the infrastructure monitoring thrust uh, as being about sustainability. So managing infrastructure responsibly so that it doesn't have failures which for, from which one has to have an entire rebuild. So rebuilding infrastructure from scratch is extremely capital intensive, obviously disruptive, and it's very impactful for, for cities. And as uh, Amal mentioned already, building materials themselves are extremely energy in, intensive. So concrete or the cement industry, if, if it was a country, it would be the third highest uh, greenhouse gas emit, emitting uh, country in the world after China and the US. And so as Amal mentioned, I have colleagues uh, in civil and environmental engineering working on tackling exactly that challenge. So reducing 
the CO2 emissions uh, that, that goes into the, the creation of, of Portland cement, either using um, upcycling or, or, or even other materials for that, that um, Portland cement binder. And obviously steel production is, is also extremely uh, energy intensive. So there, we have a lot to do on, on the, the yeah, material side as well. So what do you see as the biggest challenges, Andrew, in terms of, I mean, if you had to really get something sorted quickly, I mean, Amal really captured, I think, most of them. Obviously, there's increasing urban populations. That's a global phenomenon, obviously, in the United States as well. Complexity that, that goes with that densification, uh, that, is, that can lead to sort of unforeseen failures. Most large cities are, are coastal. Uh, so there, there are going to be a lot of land use issues, very, very challenging land use questions, obviously, uh, legal uh, consequences of that. I've mentioned aging infrastructure already uh, in, in our older, uh, more developed cities. And I think an important one, and I'm all pointed to this too, that there's sort of the, this, the social equity piece that the kind of paradox, I would say, of a, of a successful city is that they attract people. That's a good thing. And I, I definitely think that's, that's part of the solution of a more, to, toward a more sustainable planet. But immediately, Accompanying that is is the fact that affordable housing then becomes a huge issue, and so it's is no longer successful for all. So that 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 is something that we need to sort of directly ad- address, and it's going to be through public funding usually. Um, Amal, when we talk about um, adapting to climate change, we typically focus on technological innovation and and what what can we do, but Judging by what you said earlier, I just wanted you to expand on this idea that we might want to think about this differently from the perspective of past practices and ways of life. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Um, Just, I mean, just picking some models, historical and other, that I think were interesting for us uh, to think about in my practice and in my research, you know, when we did 49 cities, it was interesting to note that Le Corbusier, the very famous modernist architect, uh, uh, you know, came up with this radiant city idea. And usually it's, it's you know, criticized the, because it's tower in the park. But actually, when you looked at what he was proposing, he was proposing an extremely dense uh, uh, kind of city that uh, where buildings had a minimal footprint and the ground was really like a forest. It was, uh, you know, there were kind of game grounds, there were urban farms, there were, is it what is, was much richer than what was left when you look now at public housing or which is kind of concrete. So, uh, and so this for us is still, it, it's still important to think about the ground as something much thicker, much richer, uh, and to bring it together with density and to rethink this model. You know, other models that I love to think about historically that are tied to infrastructure, thinking about Andrew is when Haussmann in Paris carved his big kind of boulevards for, I mean, this was the era of infrastructure in the 1850s. Every neighborhood had a, they call it a lavoir. It was a public place for washing. And women would gather there to wash. And it really kind of started seeds of conversations and social movements and women's movements. And so how do we think about infrastructure to create opportunities for coming together? Uh, I love earth ships. You know, they're really ugly, but... The Earthship idea in Arizona, which is this 
individual house that is built in the desert that is like a little system that, you know, uses minimal energy. And, you know, there are ambitions such as those that are reimagining each part of the built environment that I think are still quite inspiring uh, to me as an architect and that I think about when I think about kind of living in a new way. You are listening to a webinar from Columbia University in the US, a webinar entitled Climate Change and the Future of Our Cities. So that's absolutely amazing. And so, so I, I, you get, you're going to be very, because I do feel, you know, we, we do need to figure out what things need to look like 10, 30, but actually 100 years from now, as we gradually decarbonize and, and well, actually <laughs> decarbonize as fast as possible, um, the uh, society. And so this, this opportunity to think completely differently about cities, I think, is, is wonderful. And we'll come back to some of the issues of COVID later on. I want to ask you about and what, whether that's changed the way cities might work in the future. Um, but um, Andrew, over to you. Do you actually see a place in the future for the kind of, of old ways that Amal describes? I mean, they, they sound wonderful. And the whole thing of serendipitous interaction and creating a community, which I must admit, even when I walk around New York, I'm amazed given how you know, uh, how the place is built, you find people bumping into each other and chatting on the street. I just think they clearly belong to a community that's been around for a while. And they actually, and, and there is almost like there are, there are villages all over New York that are actually coming together. Are there ways in which you think smart cities can approach work in concert with these, can work in concert with these ideas and, and help address the urgent need for rapid deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, but also create an environment that is, that is different? And, and what we need for the future. I mean, fundamentally, yes. Yeah. So I don't, I don't see smart cities and, and maybe older ways of doing things as as competing. They can be entirely complementary. I, I would say just immediately that the cities that we have, it will take some time to change them. So to some extent, we have we have what we we have, and we can work hard to change them fast but there's so much capital has gone into them. We, we, we're doing even a poor job of maintaining just basic functionality of the infrastructure that we have. So there would really have to be a, a massive change in, in public appetite. I think, and, and I mentioned this before, my, my fundamental view on this, I didn't come to, to, to this area from a climate point of view. I, I guess perhaps I just love cities and, and I love living in them. But I think it is very, very clear that cities are a key part of the solution for more sustainable planet. There have been many studies that have shown that drastically lower carbon footprint per capita for urban dwellers, particularly in high density. If you compare, let's say, U.S. cities versus large cities versus smaller uh urban agglomerations in, in the U.S. And that's the same, by the way, not just for individual households and dwellers, but also for all of the service services that, that, that go to support that. And so I think that's a key, that's a, a key thing. So for, from my point of view, I, it, the climate is, is a huge benefit that I want to promote, but it's, it's, a, it's a byproduct of, of saying, if we can make cities more attractive, more livable, then we will get this knock-on benefit. We should also make urban life greener, but most importantly, I think we can we should promote 
cities. I mean, just to give you an idea, the difference in CO2 footprint per capita, it can be like factors of 20. I've seen in some studies between places like New York, we are one of the very best in the United States versus other uh, smaller cities uh, across the country. So th- these are these are, are huge uh, impacts. And so that obvi- obviously that's coming from, from transportation, uh, living in apartments in general is much more energy efficient than uh, living in, in single family homes uh, and all of the energy uh, uses that, that comes with that. So I guess what I'm saying is just promoting cities, making them function better, making them more attractive, more livable is in and of itself a huge step in, in the right direction. And to me, because we're sort of stuck with the infrastructure that we have, the fastest way to adapt to a lot of the challenges and to make cities greener is actually through some technological interventions. And so I'm not, I'm not at all saying that technologies can be the solution and the savior for everything. But if they're injected in, in a thoughtful, ethical manner, then, then yes, they can, they can definitely help. So I think of this as sort of adding like a digital layer to our infrastructure. And, and think of the analogy could be like software and hardware on our, on our computers. So it can be easier to update the software or firmware, but maybe more expensive and, and something one doesn't do very often that one updates one's computer. Maybe that's not a great analogy, but, but that might be a simple way to, to, to think of, of what I'm uh, thinking about. And so for us, as I mentioned before, in, in New York City is an incredible place to work. So it's for, for me and, and the, the people that I work with, it's, it's sort of our, our living, living lab. And, and even more than that, we've just recently, just adjacent to Columbia's campus, we have in, in West Harlem uh, or an experimental test bed, and this is an advanced urban wireless communications. And also connected to that is, is localized, what we call edge computing, uh, that can provide sort of real, the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure to kind of pilot some of the ideas that we're, we're looking uh, to pursue. So this is roughly a 30 block uh, test bed and can support all kinds of pilot testing. So the, the type of thing that you would need if you wanted autonomous vehicles to function safely in urban environments, if you wanted to improve city services through, you know, like garbage collection, pest control, roadside construction, facade inspection, all sorts of, you know, the nitty gritty of the day to day, those kinds of things could be made to, to function more seamlessly. Deliveries, urban freight, that's just a huge uh, hassle in, in, and, and safety concern in, in cities. Uh, traffic safety, uh, safer streets for vulnerable populations, and then a lot of applications in, in hyperlocal environmental sensing. So heat island effects, air quality, urban flooding, and, and I'm sure things that I can't or we can't even uh, dream of yet. But to explore what could we do to, to make our fixed infrastructure more adaptive in, in the short time horizon, just because things are, are changing so fast. But I underscore that technology can be exciting, but fundamentally, I believe it needs to serve the social and ecological needs. So it, we should not be serving technology. Okay. 
That sounds like a good <laughs> a good line. Um, so, uh, Amal, I mean, building on this idea, Andrew's put out that um, uh, cities can be a powerful solution to the problems of climate change. And, of course, in New York, we're, we've got this advantage of this thing called the subway, which is an amazing thing, which, which actually means we don't need to do a lot of other things uh, that other people do with cars, etc. Still seem to be a lot of cars in, in New York, of course, but... Um, so what are your thoughts about his his idea, his thesis, that cities can be a powerful solution to the need to alter energy use in particular? Yeah, of course, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, you know, I think density is, is, is better, lesser footprint is better. What, what I would say, though, is what I love about what Andrew is describing now is, is not just let's do a brand new city somewhere in the desert and all the bells and whistles of technology to celebrate technology. He's talking about adaptive reuse at the, you know, an adaptation at the scale of a, of an existing infrastructure. And that is also in itself a, a great step towards uh, uh, sustainability, reusing what we have and making it smarter, better, you know, through this other layer, you know, we talked about messiness. We want to be layering these things, you know, green stuff, technological stuff. You know, I, I think um, th- this is this is really interesting and important to be able to reuse and not just give up and 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 kind of uh, go somewhere else. The only thing that I, I always sort of uh, struggle with, and maybe that's a result of our 49 cities, is is you never want to look at a, at a strict boundary. You want to understand things as porous. You know, the city is not this isolated little island that performs really well. As urban dwellers, we are, you know, queens of extraction. I mean, food is coming miles away to serve us, materials, and and, you know, so we almost need to trace, you know, take every urban dweller and make connections and understand, you know, where's all the stuff coming from and can we fold it back closer or can we be smarter about these networks so that we don't just have, you know, like stuff serving cities and just land serving cities, you know, around and you don't create this dichotomy between the urban and the rural, which honestly has become a political dichotomy around the world and real inequities are, you know, visible through that kind of division as well. So we need to look at things kind of holistically and almost as networks and never think of the city as this kind of isolated, isolated object. It's always connected. And how do we make those connections uh, better, more equitable? I think those are the kinds of questions. But ultimately, yes, we should be trying to densify and trying you know, trying to do more with with this this amazing thing that has been with us for centuries, which is this kind of living close knit together. Uh, you know, in a dense settlement. Is is it the same in places like Nairobi as it is in New York, or do you think there's no? A- so I I think that's the other thing is like you know there is a difference between an urban dweller in New York and an urban dweller in Nairobi. We don't have the same carbon footprint. We don't even have the same carbon footprint in different neighborhoods in New York. I mean, we have to recognize that uh, ultimately climate change is, you know, much more, you know, the, the those of us in the wealthy, I mean, wealth has direct impact on carbon footprint. And that is a real issue. And this is why the notion of equity and social justice is intimately connected um, uh, to, to climate change. In the end, it is 
uh, it, it is the most vulnerable. It is the country, you know, many countries in the global south who have not contributed historically to carbon emissions and climate change who are going to carry the burden of this. So at every scale, this issue of equity is, is crucial. So it's, it's not a homogeneous uh, map. Uh, and so cities are not, you know, not equal in that sense. So um, let's talk about the pandemic and the effects that funny last two years. So, um, uh, and maybe not over yet. So um, what are the lessons we can learn from this and, and also uh, have cities and the culture of work and offices changed permanently? I'm interested in both these issues because I think the, um, someone was actually saying the other day, I was at a, uh, an event at the New York Historical Society and, and one of our donors, actually, uh, um, Barbara Lee Diamondstein Spielvogel, who has um, given us the first um, money for um, scholarships for the climate school. It's fantastic. Anyway, she raised this whole issue. She's well and truly um, part of New York. And she just wondered what's going to be the, the future of these parts of New York where people have been in offices and maybe they won't want to be in offices in the future. And is there are these it's going to become sort of repurposed in some way? Are we? What are we going to do with all this office infrastructure? I've had other people just saying the same thing to me in London, in charge of huge um, area, you know, huge buildings that are incredibly spectacular, and they don't know whether really they're going to need that much space any longer. So what are your thoughts about that? Andrew, do you want to kick off on that? Sure. I mean, obviously from an environmental point of view, uh, there's there's less commuting as a result of that, um, so that that has environmental benefits. But as as you just pointed out, Alex, uh, there seem to be an awful lot of cars in in in, in New York City, and and in fact, you know, vehicle registration is up, uh, and 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 you know, probably is harder harder to find a parking space uh, now. So mm-hmm. so that that part of it, where we think we would have gotten the benefit, in fact, behaviors. Through to the, through this this strange impulse uh, have have led to odd outcomes. Um, obviously, I think the increase in in micro mobility, scooters, e bikes, bicycles, all of that part has been a fantastic positive change uh, in in sort of urban life, urban culture. The downside, though, immediately then is is has been the the clear increase in pedestrian, cyclists, uh, fatalities, and injuries. And so, w- while we were doing really well for a long time with programs like Vision Zero, uh, there was an improvement. Maybe it had kind of stabilized, but but there were some positive outcomes uh, from from the COVID pandemic. But then always sort of muted by, by other things. I, th- I think the explosion of, of sort of e-commerce deliveries, that was something which, I mean, it was already picking up, but that exploded obviously during the, the pandemic. Uh, and, and I think maybe has become really ingrained in, in culture, in urban culture now. This is getting maybe off topic from a technical point of view, but I do worry a lot about the sort of bifurcation of work roles in, in sort of those that are served and those that are serving in that. I don't I think that's going to be problematic in the in the in the near term even. And, and this gets to to at least what I think of for cities to work, they have to work equitably. So the social justice component is is really important. And I want cities to work. So that, that's that, those are some, I guess, initial thoughts. I think it has presented 
a lot of challenges. There's been a tremendous amount of innovation. As I said, the delivery, um, uh, delivery networks, uh, you know, has, there's been a lot of rapid innovation. I think we've questioned the way public spaces are used. I think that's a great thing. Uh, so who, who is the city serving? Um, so I think we sort of need to shift, sift through the, the pros and cons of these and figure out how to integrate the pros into our future cities. But I don't have all the answers, but you were mentioning about the, the subway ridership and how that's such a great thing that we have. I was looking the other day at uh, ridership data and how that's, that's you know, coming back versus pre-pandemic levels. And it's quite interesting to, to note that the Saturday ridership is the one that's closest. It's almost like 80% or something like that of pre-pandemic levels, whereas weekday is, you know, in the mid 50s to 60s. Uh, and I think that really signifies that connectedness, that socialization, culture, you know, the, the activities that one might engage in on a Saturday are still going to be a real draw in cities. And I think that's kind of the, the magnetic force that is going to, to, to sort of keep cities um, alive and, and kicking for a long time. I don't, I don't think, uh, I think this is a transient uh, blip, okay. I guess, fun- fundamentally. Okay, so we're going to run it. We've got, we've got over five, we've got nearly 500 people here and there's a lot of questions about to come in. So uh, I wanted to switch to Q&A in a minute, but just before um, for that, Amal, maybe just one for you, just quickly. Uh, what do you tell me? Tell me about what worries you most and also what you are most hopeful about in terms of what inspires you most about this issue of climate and the future of cities. I, I mean, every day I wake up, I think about it as a really overwhelming, uh, but uh, um, so that's, uh, and as Andrew pointed to COVID as the most recent crisis, uh, you know, some things we did really well, some things we just could not get momentum on, you know, not even, I mean, we developed vaccines in like speed light, you know, and then half the people don't want to, you know, I mean, it's like, this is where, you know, and it's going to be the same with it is the same with the climate, the climate crisis. But on the other hand, you know, I think every day, little transformations. I mean, just to tell a little personal story, my kids around the time of COVID, I don't, they just stopped eating red meat. And, you know, they're nine and 12. Uh, we rarely ate red meat beforehand, but it was just, it's just a thing. And I think our students, uh, the, you know, the, the, our kids are, you know, the awareness is so ingrained now um, that I think uh, there's a lot of behavioral change. And if if you look at the capacity to, to change one's behavior under COVID, we can change. And I think it's possible to change to address the climate crisis and we have to do it. So this is maybe the more hopeful side is, is our capacity to adapt. So I'm going to switch. I know there's many more questions I was going to ask you, but we need to switch the panel to the audience now because there's a ton of questions coming in. And I just want to kick off, and I might, if we can maybe answer them fairly quickly so that we can get through more questions, if that's okay. So um, so I'll ask Andrew this one. I'll probably won't ask you both the same questions, but um, Andrew, what are the top three initiatives, or, or maybe one or two, whatever, that smart cities can do to mitigate against climate change? What do you think are the most important things? Okay, uh, probably things around the, the grid uh, in terms of power storage, like dynamic bi-directional um, power storage coupled with, with EVs. 
autonomous vehicles, they're hyped for probably maybe the wrong reasons, but they could have a lot of uh, benefits to, um, to, to more efficient transportation, even sprinkling a few autonomous vehicles into a, a mixed bag with, with human uh, driven vehicles can improve the behavior of, of the collective and, and make it more efficient. Um, and as I mentioned before, just, just infrastructure resilience, uh, understanding that it's really the science, the exposure, where are we now? Uh, mm -hmm. that, that is just a, a really important aspect of, of sort of the sensing piece. And I guess building, building materials are going to need to change quite dramatically. You know, bearing in mind what you said about concrete and steel. Um, do, you, do you think there are ways of doing this? Amal, maybe you should answer this one. Um, are there ways to actually mitigate climate change by changing to wood, or do you think that's just so fanciful for New York? No, no, I, 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 I don't think anything is fanciful. First of all, you know, first thing is if you have an existing fabric, adaptive reuse, preservation, this is what we need to, to be doing more and more uh, everywhere. Yeah. Second, if you have, you know, the timber technology is advancing, certainly in places like Europe and the US, this is definitely a choice. In other places, you know, research and diminishing or transforming concrete. Uh, we have faculty at Columbia looking at earthen materials. And so alternate materials, um, definitely, we, we need to be looking at those too. Um, I think it's very specific. It's almost becomes more regional, uh, whereas in a way with, with modernism and this sort of, you know, everything became a kind of homogeneous go-to concrete and steel. Yeah. And so we have to go back to what is possible more regionally. So, uh, so um, another question for you, Amal, maybe, although feel free to dive in, Andrew. What are the limits to growth in terms of population? Has, I mean, is there a calculation for uh, such a thing as an optimal size of a city? <laughs> uh, you know, this is why the boundary around city is very abstract. There is no boundary anymore. So, like, like a city is like this and it just, it never ends. So, um, You're saying it should be like this, right? You want to bring it. It, 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 it should, but I don't know if that's possible. Uh, you know, Ebenezer Howard, who uh, came up with the with the town country, which was the origin of the suburban model, had these circular cities, and after a certain size, you would create a new circle, and everything in between was, uh, you know, was, uh, and so it was kind of anti-sprawl, and it was, but you know, I, I think I don't I don't know how to answer this. I think. Uh, a density that can maintain and support equity uh, and all the characteristics uh, we uh, we identified in terms of transportation, walkability, housing, uh, access to healthy food. I, I, I don't know if it's a, it's a number per se. Density could be continuous as long as within every neighborhood you get the ingredients that you need. Andrew, have you got an answer for that one or not, really? I don't have an answer, but but I think it's an opportunity, and I think this this is where I'm. So I'm not an urban theorist, but I think this is a it's an optimization problem. This is what you're posing, and I think this is where you know engineers you know could work together with Amal and others, you know, to to come up at least with the idea of, of what what is some kind of optimal, not not just in a purely engineering sense, but but something that makes sense both from an engineering sense and from a social point of view. 
Okay, so so I, I'm going to go back. There's a lot of interesting questions coming in. So in an increasingly warming world, why do we continue to build upward with steel and glass, which requires air conditioning to maintain comfortable temperatures? Why aren't architects creating buildings that go down into the earth with light wells, of course, um, in order to take advantage of the natural insulation of earth and soil, which, of course, happened in ancient times, you know, um, as we know, in the Middle East. So, um, Amal, you should tackle this one, I think. Um. We can. It's very expensive to go down. There's a water table. There's all kinds of issues. Uh, and we are creatures uh, of uh, light and air. And, you know, bringing those things down are also uh, really difficult. But, I, you know, I think uh, um, like that's why I was mentioning the Earthship. You know, there are ideas about integrating a little bit more in that section. Um, but I would say, you know, the problem is not going from very high up to very high down, but maybe thickening the crust uh, to be building something that is uh, demands slightly less energy in terms of being able to be walkable, et cetera. Okay. So, um, Andrew, what one for you here. Um, so if you could um, think about the way we um, are now thinking about um, creating green buildings, uh, maybe this is for both of you, actually. Uh, are there some ways in which one could actually start to think about the built environment in terms of buildings that offset their carbon emissions, one relative to the other? So you can have a green building that actually is carbon negative, you know, uh, and another one that's carbon positive uh, alongside each other. Are, there, are people thinking in those terms, uh, in terms of how they think about the infrastructure needed for the cities to get towards net zero? Yeah, I think the most likely way of achieving that kind of thing is, is is primarily through sort of solar panel skins on on our buildings that that won't work everywhere, obviously, and depending upon the proximity of, of neighboring, if it's a tall building, that could be shade cast. But but I think that would be probably you, know, you need efficient heating and cooling, so probably geothermal or something like that. Um, but in terms of generation of of power, it would it would probably be through solar. Okay. And um, another question here, maybe this is for you, Amal. Um, given that over the next 20 years, lower income countries will develop their cities, how do the panelists see the uh, adoption of their ideas where financial resources are somewhat limited? I think many of the ideas we talked about tonight are ideas uh, about uh, you know thinking about the use of materials that are regional and that are uh, sort of moving away from heavy carbon use. And I think for uh, developing countries and countries of the global south, that's that's difficult. You know, concrete has become the go-to material. I mean, I was just in Beirut, Lebanon two weeks ago. And, you know, I mean, there's no concrete is everything. So I understand that the transformation there uh, is really crucial. Um uh, um, but, um, you know, density and, and uh, access to housing and all these things, I mean, these are not uh, specific to what we need to do here in the, in the global north. And, you know, in many ways right now, uh, yeah, so it's, it's not, I, I, think, I think these ingredients are ingredients that, uh, that, that's why I was saying it's not just about data and technology and resources. It's also about the design of the city and its yeah. part in terms of its form, its proximity, its scale, uh, and these kinds of relationship between inside and outside. So, I mean, as the populations grow, which is great because people are living longer and, and we're sort of eliminating disease and 
and people are standards of living are generally increasing in many parts of the world. Um, cities are going to grow, and there's no question about that. Um, but there's also the issue of food security that is associated with all of this. And I'm, one of the questions here is, any thoughts on vertical and indoor farming in city spaces going forward? Because because farming has got its own carbon footprint issues. And so how do you actually build this into the design of a city where most of the people are going to be living and they're going to need food? Yeah, maybe I can... Uh ask that uh answer Please. that uh, or is it for andrew andrew you want to no, no, no. you should take this one uh yeah no we've been working with the uh, uh uh with the vert- vertical farming quite a bit with urban farming etc i think definitely you're going to have a, a component in cities they're very energy intensive right now and the only way to do it is, is with kind of carbon offsets etc but you know large companies there was just an article recently in in the new york times about companies like walmart and other who are looking into uh into trying to grow food uh through indoor indoor farming so i mean it it all these things whether it's urban farming or indoor uh, hydroponics aquaponics all these things need to kind of come into play so it's really a kit of parts as opposed to an either or mm-hmm. you know so uh, one of the things that uh, gets mentioned here um, is the issue of policy and the way um, academics can influence policy with the work they do do you want to talk about a bit about that Andrew because you've already touched on it in terms of coming up for recommendations um, for the L line, you know. So to what extent do you think um, policymakers are listening to engineers and architects about what we really need for the future of our cities? And are there ways in which we could do that better? I think, you know, that experience was perhaps unique because it was effectively a government decided, a governor decided to sort of bypass the normal um, operating model of, of political decision making and, and go directly to, to engineering expertise. I, th- I think fundamentally, probably more engineers need to seek elected office, I th- if, frankly, because that, that's just not the way many countries are run. But I, I think that would would be would probably yield some more rational thought because most of what I'm talking about and, and I'm also, and, and this whole discussion is, is about long range planning and decision-making it, it's, it's not in short political cycles. And so we're up against some just built in um, political challenges, I think. And so it, it's a real, it's a real challenge. I'm not a policy expert. I, I work with people in, in, in public policy and government and engaging with communities because they are voters is, is a mechanism, but it's, it's, you know, these things are, are still slow and we do need to move faster. Okay. Um, in a couple of minutes, I'm just going to ask you a final wrap up question of one take home message you'd like to give the audience from today. But before we get to that, um, uh, Amal, t- both of you actually, could you tell us a little bit about how you think, you know, we've talked about working with policymakers, but how about engineers working with architects? How does that, how well does that go today? Is it something that where you think there are, there's, there's a lot of integration and collaboration going on all the time, or do you feel that these are, there's a, a need to bring these, this new interdisciplinary way of working uh, more I mean you're kind of forced to work together at one level you know, or another <laughs> we love to work together what do you mean we're forced to work together <laughs> okay you love to uh, work I, you know I, I don't know for me I, uh, you know I think uh, th- it, this is a moment and it has been now for some time uh, it, that is all about collaboration and, yeah. and 
we can't be experts. We, I mean, in, in everything and, and, you know, and collaboration is really the key. Uh, it allows us to think across scales. It allows to think, to, to kind of bring together, you know, design used to be here and policy used to be here. And, and now we have to just bring all these things together. And the only way to do it is to work together. I don't know, in my experience, you know, every single project, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a pleasure to collaborate with our, uh, with our kind of teammates and, 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 and engineers. So uh, I, I think we need, as architects, I feel like we need to know more, uh, learn more from our colleagues. That's, that's what I feel, but, uh, but it's, it's really crucial. That's why you need a climate school. So there we go. <laughs> um, okay, your one takeaway message for everybody very quickly before we wrap up. I think fundamentally that we, we should we should act quickly. So, you know, so that, that we, we're, we don't fail to, you know, to slow the rate of, of change through mitigation and that we, you know, that we can't keep up with adaptation. I think fundamentally that's, that's, that's my fear. Um, I think there's a way through with technology, but it has to be implemented in, in a, a socially responsible way and, and very thoughtful. And, and I would say also, sorry, I know this is too long perhaps, but, but we should think always, whatever we do quickly now, we should do with flexibility in mind. Things change, things change often, and, and we should build adaptation uh, in for the future. Amal? Yes, I think, uh, you know, get engaged, you know, in whatever your discipline or your practices or, you know, what, what is it that in your field you can do to change that field? Uh, and uh, and to start to kind of push thinking and acting differently forward. And sometimes it's uh, little things every day, and sometimes it's you have an opportunity to have a big impact. But it is a daily, I mean, as an architect, it is a daily battle. Like you are arguing about systems every day. You are arguing about the cost of insulation every day. Like it's just like it's relentless, and it's just like every day you're just kind of trying to push the needle uh, and if we all do that, you know, maybe there's, uh, there's some hope. Climate Conversations is published with the support of the Mark Spencer published Climactic Collective. And it's just one of more than 20 podcasts making up that collective. More about the collective and the associated podcasts can be found at climactic.fm. Music for Climate Conversations is from the Melbourne-based group Music for a Warming World. You can find a link to that group in the episode notes. Responsibility for Climate Conversations rests with me. But you could help with the questions. And if there is something specific that needs addressing, but the question is not being asked of whom it should be asked, please make a suggestion and send it to r.mclean7 at icloud.com. Earlier episodes of Climate Conversation can be found at the Climactic website. Simply search for climactic.fm. Go to the Climate Conversations artwork, click on that, and there you will find all the earlier episodes. Beyond that, and in all this climate chaos, remember just a few things. Put your faith in genuine climate science. Also, action is the best antidote to despair. And that, I must add is one of the drivers of this podcast. And remember, 
be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. That ends this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company, and until we talk again, please take care. Thank you.